When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings, demigods and half-bloods. Welcome into Riptide Radio, Comic Book Nation's Percy Jackson After Show. And today we are talking all things A God Buys Us Cheeseburgers. We're in the back half of the season now, episode five of Percy Jackson season one. We have exclusive insight from Hephaestus actor Timothy O'Mudson, Grover actor Aryan Samhadri, and we will be joined by Aries himself, Mr. Adam Copeland, later in the show. And it is quite literally the greatest thing I have done so far in my time at Comic Book. I've been wearing blue for every one of these episodes, Nicole. Not today. We're, ro- we're rocking a little red and black that. for the God of War himself. Uh, I am Liam Crowley, and I'm joined alongside, as always, by Miss Nicole Drum. Nicole, I got to ask you, based on this week's episode, what's your go-to diner order? Oh, oh, I got this. I, I lo- First of all, I love a good diner. Like when you're traveling, you find a diner or like when you travel on the run, you got to stop. You got to stop. I am a cheeseburger and fries in the biggest side of ranch dressing they can give me allowed by law. That is my go-to. I judge everybody by those standards. I love that. And with diners for me, whatever reason, they always associate with breakfast. So I don't care what time it is. Oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't care if it's two in the morning and we're on a road trip. I'm getting three buttermilk pancakes and some scrambled eggs religiously that's every a good single one. time that's a good one it's a pretty good spread and we saw aries himself have a pretty good spread in this episode a god buys us cheeseburgers this is the episode a lot of people uh were waiting for based on the casting of adam copeland as this character the debut of this character in live action i know he was i believe played uh by someone in the percy jackson movie in 2010 but no lines of dialogue just kind of sitting there on olympus we get the raw full uncut god of war in this episode but before we dive into the specifics nicole i gotta ask you what were your overall thoughts on percy jackson episode five i will say this is not my favorite episode because i'm partial to the st louis episode for like hometown reasons but this was such a cool episode like i think part of it i got excited because you know of aries being in it and then it just more than delivered than what i was expecting there's some there's some little gems in that episode that brought humor that I did not anticipate from that character. And I just freaking loved it. Plus it did, and we'll get more into this, but it digs into some things that I think are really important in terms of the character development, specifically for Annabeth. I thought was really cool. So it was a great episode. Just fantastic. I echo everything you said, but I'm going to amend one statement. This is my favorite episode. <laughs> oh my God. You be. talk about how you're, you're, you're partial to St. Louis because of the hometown roots. I'm very partial to this episode because of my wrestling fandom of Adam specifically. I still have the photo right here. This is me and Aries when I was oh like. Oh my God. Legit, I believe I was 11 years old. This is from 2012. And just That's like amazing. the personal connection going in obviously gave me a lot of bias. But Adam's performance he gets this character so much and beyond even 
beyond even getting the character, he understands this world. Uh, a big thing uh, that I've said about praising the guest stars is they're coming in and they have maybe 10 minutes of screen time with a character that has thousands of years of history. Suzanne Cryer with Echidna, Glenn Turman with Chiron, and Adam is no different with Ares. Ares has been through the ringer with so many things in the past, and it's so easy to take that dialogue and make it feel like an exposition dump. And the way he conveys it, the way he executes it, it feels like he's showing and not telling. And that makes this world feel so lived in and a world that I want to, to explore for years and years and years to come. Uh, Nicole, I feel like I just gave my overall thoughts and just teed up everything I'm going to praise about Ares. So let's talk about Ares uh, from the jump. The introduction to the God of War. He arrives on his motorcycle straight out of the pages of the Lightning Thief. Uh, and he's telling the trio, he's being all, all coy and cocky. You know, like I said about the executing the dialogue without it feeling like exposition dump. He just gives a little nod of like, oh, are you really? You're behind schedule. Winter Solstice is coming up. Very much from the jump, making it feel like he is a part of this world and he knows the rules at play. Uh, when Ares pulls up on that motorcycle, what's going through your head? Honestly? My first thought was, I want his jacket. <laughs> it just looks so good. Like, like you said, it, it's lived in. It's what what you would think that if, if Ares were to just roll up on his bike, like in like just outside on the street, this is what he would probably look like. And for me, I was just like, dang, I want that jacket. It just felt so natural and also like intimidating, but also you want to know more. And I thought it was just like, oh, these kids don't know what they're getting into, but I'm so ready. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, they, they get into something and they tiptoe into it because they eventually make their way to that diner mm -hmm. that Ares says he wants to meet them at. And he gives them a whole bunch of lore, a whole bunch of ketchup. He, ketchup, not diner ketchup. He catches yeah. them up on things. And something he, he mentions in this whole monologue of, of the Olympians fighting and them clashing and that they'll throw each other down the set, a set of stairs just to get ahead. He mentions Kronos. We got our first name drop of anyone who's read the books, you know, it's not a spoiler. If you know Greek mythology, it's not a spoiler. Uh, the Time Lord is the overarching villain of this entire five book arc. Uh, and we get that name drop for the first time uh, in this episode. Nicole, when, when you hear Kronos spoken out loud at that diner table, do, do you feel the last Olympian coming on? Yes. I, 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 like, my inter I had an internal villain laugh because you, if you know the books, you do know that significance and you know, and it's just like, yes, it's like, I feel it. I feel everything gelling. Like, not that I don't feel things coming together through each episode. We get a little bit more. It's like a puzzle kind of un, un you know, kind of unrevealing itself to an extent, but this really felt like it. You turned like a Rubik's cube and got a whole line just right together. And you're like, Oh boy, stuff's getting serious now. I'm very excited. I really like that metaphor because yeah, there are times where you can kind of turn up the long-term storytelling and have it feel natural. And yeah, like like a Rubik's Cube, you might have a very like checkered puzzle, but all of a sudden you make one move and that puzzle starts to kind of reveal itself a bit more. So I, I really like that comparison. Edge, uh, Edge, Aries, Adam Copeland, <laughs> all, all one and the same. Um, the, same. The monologue he gives is also straight out of professional wrestling. It's literally a pro wrestling promo. The way he's talking, his cadence, the way he gives each character a little bit different of attention. He's, he's trying to stand up to Annabeth, who's trying to one-up him. He's trying to intimidate Grover, who later kind of gets inside of his head, uh, trying to understand where Percy's coming from, because Percy is obviously a new player in this whole game, and he doesn't know exactly how much he knows, how much he wants to divulge to him. It's all very interesting, and he eventually gives 
two of the three demigods a mission, sending them to an amusement park, to the Tunnel of Love specifically, to retrieve his stolen shield. Nicole, I know you have so many thoughts on this moment. Yes, the Tunnel of Love was, first of all, it is such an interesting... When you know the story and you know where these characters go, it's such an interesting situation to put them in. But also, the Tunnel of Love is just such a unique thing considering that there is not a lot of love lost between the gods. And we kind of break that down a little bit more. We've known from the beginning and all this, that this is a very messed up family. Like the, the gods are not, they are not the healthiest people. Let's just be honest. And in this scene, as they're going through the tunnel, we see the story of Hephaestus play out. And it really exemplifies just how terrible the gods are to each other. There's a lot of backstabbing, a lot of maltreatment, a lot of emotional abuse. And what's really, I think, interesting about this scene is for Percy, this is not new information. Like his mother has always told him they don't treat each other well. This is not a good world. And she's kind of taught him that. But for Annabeth, this is kind of new information. It's, it's a different perspective. And we slowly start to see as they're going through this on their journey, it's changing kind of her thinking. We, we see how different Percy and Annabeth really are. And there's that moment of realization that maybe that's the point. Like maybe Percy being different is what is needed rather than just the same old, same old. And it's a very big turning point when we get a little deeper into things when we find that shield. And it's a huge turning point I feel like both for the story in terms of its the dynamics, but also for Annabeth herself. We, we see a big, big shift. And I think it's just absolutely fantastic, especially because we get a surprise when we encounter another god, Hephaestus himself. What did you think about that? What did you think about that moment? I have to ask because I thought it was super cool. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I love your breakdown of like all the different narrative techniques. It furthers, it furthers the plot. It furthers the character development of Annabeth. It furthers the relationship between Percy and Annabeth. I also love the visual style of telling Hephaestus' story with kind of like projections and all that. I love the lighting they used. Uh, it felt like, olympian northern lights in a way like just based on the color palette that they were they were executing and also shout out to disney plus for having the the money bags to have licensed music and have what is love playing how appropriate such Um, great choice i love that you know they're taking songs that we're familiar with like the riptide by vance joy and, and changing that for the trailer and giving them like a new meaning like now the next time i hear what is love because it's on the radio like every other day um i'm gonna think of percy jackson i'm gonna think about this moment i'm gonna think about the emotions i'm feeling mm-hmm. when these characters are evolving uh and you talk about hephaestus it, it takes us a minute to actually meet him and first we meet one of his signature traps which is this yes he presented to hera and oh my god nicole the backstory of this throne is so good because you mentioned uh, his his layered story and how it's a tragic mm-hmm. tale. And the best villains, the best anti-heroes, the best flawed heroes are the ones who make mistakes. You know where they're coming from, but they still do make those mistakes. And man, this, this throne he presents to Hera, he traps Hera and refuses to free her until Aphrodite is made his wife. 
I'm like, we meet Timothy Hilmudson's portrayal of Hephaestus later, and I'm like, oh, look at him. He's a sweet, cuddly teddy bear. And then I realize, like, this is a bad dude. <laughs> a lot of these gods are like, sure, they're, they're put into circumstances where, like you, like we've mentioned, and we're going to talk about the generational trauma aspect, they feel like they're helpless to change. But it's also very frustrating when they embrace mm-hmm. the flaws that come with this Olympian family, you know? Yeah, it's very much a hurt people, hurt people situation with them. And that in that particular scenario really illustrates that, especially when you realize what that throne does. Yeah, uh, shout out my my go-to Fortnite skin, Midas, who's actually a real <laughs> character in Greek mythology. That's all I could think of when Percy yeah. takes the, makes the decision to sit in the throne, he's slowly being encased in gold. I'm like, oh my God, Midas reference, Midas reference. Midas is coming to... to Percy Jackson, and maybe we get a Fortnite crossover one day. I would love to see some Percy Jackson skins in Fortnite one day. It would it would take my hours of playing that game up to another level. But something I do want to bring up with this moment is Percy and Annabeth have that discussion about who is going to sit in the throne, which for those, I mean, everyone who's watching this after show, I know watch the episode, but in case you forget, the whole rule is you sit in the throne and then Ares' shield will fall and they will be able to bring Ares' shield back to the diner. However... They being just one person, because Annabeth uh, is the only one who is presumably going to make it out alive, because Percy is going to willingly lay down on his sword and sit in this throne. And the conversation they have of negotiating of of who's going to take the fall, I thought was so awesome, because Percy brings back the the callback from episode three, where he talks about he recruited Annabeth because he needed someone who wasn't going to be afraid to push him down a flight of stairs if it meant furthering the quest. And now we're in a position where maybe she would have made that decision without blinking four episodes ago, but now they've gotten a little bit closer. They're starting to understand each other. They're starting to appreciate each other. And beyond that, they're each embracing each other's best qualities, which are consequently downplaying their worst qualities. Nicole, something I did want to bring up to you, my biggest problem with this episode, I do have one massive complaint, is they are both negotiating who's going to sit in the throne based on the idea that the fates snipped the piece of thread mm-hmm. and they know someone is going to die. That is such a big moment in the books. I, there's a page dedicated to Grover's like emotion of seeing the yarn get snipped and how everything like freezes around and the panic that sets in. It was done way too casually for me. Yeah. In this episode. Uh, maybe they revisit it down the line because as we know, the yarn getting snipped is a multi-book arc it's not mm-hmm. something that's teasing just one episode or just one season but to me i was like this felt way too yeah funny. yeah I, I when i first was watching the episode i wrote down very excitedly because i like to take notes i was like the fates then i was like wait what like the, i was like wait there's more here why why aren't we why it felt like grover was more worried about the cops than the fates and i'm like that doesn't feel right like what are the cops to the fates cutting because that that's serious business. <laughs> so yeah, I 100% agree with you. Maybe I feel like maybe they are like sowing some seeds and kind of mixing it up a little bit. And I do hope we see the fates again this season because um, they look hilarious <laughs> for what they are. I really did like the way they represented them. I just didn't think they played that enough because it, and even in the conversation, like they mentioned fate, what happened a few times, but I didn't feel like when we first saw it, it had the gravity that it really needed. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, and, and later, as Percy eventually is encased in gold, we get the moment where Annabeth is trying to work out the gears and trying to get him out. And we get a moment that is literally pulled straight out of like a Broadway production in terms of the blocking, yes. where Hephaestus 
comes in from a door which is like placed on like a platform like in terms of a stage and you hear a little flute cue i'm like this is literally percy jackson being acted out as a broadway musical and that has happened before uh for those who don't know there is a lightning thief musical that used to tour on broadway it still is is shown in in middle schools and high schools nationwide um hephaestus's introduction we get a great very short but nice little taste of what that character is going to be in future seasons by Timothy O'Mudson. Uh, when you were cast as Hephaestus, it took me by so much surprise because Hephaestus isn't in this first book. So when it came to source material for understanding this character, what were you diving into? Really uh, conversations with uh, our executive producers, John Steinberg and Danny Schatz, who are old pals of mine. Just really do like, I got to have many text conversations with them asking what they wanted, who this guy was, and they were really instrumental in helping me prepare for him. And Nicole, we mentioned before the conversation yes. Annabeth and Hephaestus have. What did that do for the character of Annabeth and the character of Hephaestus consequently? For Annabeth particularly, this is a huge turning point because up until now, we have really seen her very invested in the world of the gods as they are, that that very toxic dynamic. She's she's kind of resigned to the fact that she's upset her mother and that's just the way things are going to be. And this is how this world works. And she's a little hard. Now that she has started to see from Percy's perspective, she starts to realize that the eat or be eaten doesn't necessarily have, isn't how it has to be. And you can see as she's trying to save him, even though Hephaestus is like, you can't do that. You're not going to fix it. This is how it is. She's not willing to accept that because it's very much a breaking of generational trauma. She is starting to deconstruct the idea that this kind of miserable treatment of one another is the only way it has to be. It's like when you, when people who've grown up in toxic environments start to realize they don't want to live that way anymore. And she takes that stand and she's like, no, this isn't right. This isn't how it has to be. And I'm choosing not to be this way anymore. And when she does that, it completely changes not only her and her trajectory is part of how her she's going to relate to Percy going, because you clearly see she's really upset. Like she does not want him stuck in that chair. And that's a big deal. But it also does something to Hephaestus, who for the first time, it seems like maybe he's getting an outside perspective and he feels seen and understands that maybe, okay, maybe there is another way to be. It's clear maybe it's not going to change him, but it changes him in that moment. And it makes him decide, I'm going to let this slide. I'm going to let the chair release Percy. And he tells her very specifically, you're a good kid and I'll put in a good word with your mom. It's it, the first sign that there could be change coming to this world, maybe for the first time in millennia, all because of the beginning of deconstructing all that trauma. It's amazing. It's beautifully acted, beautifully presented, and it's such a turning point for the characters and the show's trajectory as well, because we know now there's an emotional investment here that is very different than what we had just seconds before. I, oh, so good. My, my favorite monologues in relation to Percy Jackson episode five, uh, Adam as Aries in the diner is, is a 1A but Nicole Drum's analysis of Hephaestus and Annabeth's conversation is a very close 1B because uh, I couldn't have said oh it better God. myself. Like that that conversation, this is the power uh, of, of screenwriting. This is the power of good acting. Hephaestus has less than 1% of the entire runtime of this full season on screen. Yet in that 1% of screen time, he and Annabeth together 
have furthered the story so much further than any lengthy scene, any full episode has done. That's not to discredit past episodes. It's just to, to again, bolster how much good writing can do. Um, I really, I can't, I can't add anything, Nicole, like everything you said is exactly how it is. Uh, something we can add though, is the interrogation scene between Aries and Grover. This is happening simultaneously. Again, that's why this is my favorite episode because we have two of the best scenes we've seen this season airing concurrently, splicing back and forth between the two. This scene was built up by so many people involved in this production. Uh, Becky Riordan, who is an executive producer and the wife of Rick Riordan, the creator of, of Percy Jackson, waxed poetic about what we were going to get in this scene. Grover himself, Aryan Simhadri, was very excited uh, for fans to see this scene. Everyone keeps raving, Rick and Becky specifically, about an original scene that you share with Aries in the later episodes. Spoiler free, of course, that day on set, sharing the screen with Adam Copeland. You're just emotions in general. So it's basically an interrogation scene. I'm not going to tell you who interrogates who, but there is no acting in that scene. That is real fear in my eyes. Adam is one of the nicest people I've ever had the pleasure of meeting, but when he's Aries, no acting. I'm terrified. Every time I leap out of my seat, every take I jump out of that, like, like that couch. That's real. That's real fear. And it did not disappoint. This is an original scene, not in the books whatsoever. And Arian teased. He was like, I'm not going to say who's interrogating who. And much to my surprise, Grover yep. is interrogating Ares. When that dynamic is happening and the power balance is slowly shifting in the satyr's favor, how are you feeling, Nicole? I love this. And especially because you subtly, as the viewer, realize Grover's the smartest person in the room right now. And he's using psychology against a god to because Ares thinks he's got the upper hand here he you, you can tell because of Ares swear and because it's Ares I mean come on shout out to Adam Copeland for making like that confidence just so natural Ares is the one that's pressing for information he thinks he's trying to get information but Grover is very subtly using psychology and playing to Ares's ego to actually get information without Ares necessarily realizing that he's getting a god to tip his cards. And it's just so masterfully done. And I think it really speaks to just how critically important Grover actually is. Up until now, Grover has seemed really nervous, kind of anxious, a little, I mean, he's clearly been growing and developing, but this is the moment where you see that there is something, maybe his superpower is his mind because he's playing Ares this entire time. And Ares is just walking right into it. And it is just so beautifully done. And the chemistry between the actors in this performance was just amazing. I, I, could, I don't have enough good things to say about this, except for like, I am going to look at Grover in a completely different light going forward because he might be the smartest person in the room. I think Grover might have some Aphrodite blood in him because as you said, that Heck charm yeah. speak, that charm oh speak was working gosh. overtime with, with Adam. And, and something uh, that I also loved about this scene was the camera work. Uh, there's that very crucial moment where Ares kind of starts to realize like something's at play here because Grover feels like he's in control and he drops the line of like, the lightning thief and the glory of, of Ares knowing and not Athena. And we get that great camera shot that is always used in interrogation scenes, the kind of like bird's eye angled at the forehead of both Grover and Ares. I love stuff like that because it, it feels like for as fresh and new 
as this story is and how telling it in a serialized format is, it is also nice to get those camera tricks, those musical cues, those performance nuances that we are familiar with uh, from other feature films and other television shows. So I love little things like that. Uh, something I did want to mention too was the fact that uh, the backstory of we keep hinting at the fact that there was the winter solstice where all the kids went to Olympus yes. and the bolt was stolen, the helm of darkness was stolen as well. Um, I, I love just kind of filling that in and Aries mentioning like, oh yeah, I guess we did meet, but I don't remember you. I don't even remember my own kids. I hate my own kids. They're so annoying. I hate all kids. Kids. flowers yeah. and butterflies and blah 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 and i was just like damn this dude is aries something i did want to bring up though uh was at the very end of that interrogation scene when he kind of gets it when he caves in uh to what grover is doing even though he isn't aware he slams that table and Aryan samhadri told us last week that was not acting there's this bit where aries kind of like leans into grover because grover like says something that's a little off and you think he kind of grover kind of like this is Athena a little bit to try and like not die. Um, and you just have this moment where you think Grover is just going to like kick it right there. Um, and Aries like leans in and he has this like dark lighting on him and Adam slams the table and I jump out. That's not acting. That's not in the script. Like I wasn't told to like be scared. I'm just, like terrified in that moment. There's one take where he hits a table and a coffee cup like clatters to the ground. And like even just thinking about it, just like remembering that, my heart is beating faster. Like that's how good of an actor that Adam was. Like it was truly terrifying. Those literal emotions are at play and that's what makes the show so authentic and so real and feels so, you know, like it, it's doing justice to the books mm -hmm. uh, we have at play. We wrap with Percy and Annabeth returning the shield to Ares. Ares is going to give them safe passage to the Lotus Casino, where he says that they can get passage from Hermes if they play their cards right, who will get them a one-way trip straight to Los Angeles, which will then bring them to the underworld, and we can get our big culminating moment with Hades. Something I didn't want to point out, Nicole, and excuse me, because my, my wrestling fan is going to come out here. <laughs> Ares is talking down to Percy, and he's saying about how like Poseidon's had many kids, and he's forgotten about them, and Percy's no different. And Percy hits him back by saying, you think you know who I am. For anyone who has watched a single Adam Copeland match as Edge or as Adam Copeland in AEW, the opening needle drop to his theme song, Metalingus by Alter Bridge, is a recording of someone saying, you think you know me. And so even though that this is not exactly you think you know me, when Percy said, you think you know who I am, I leapt out of my bed. I was watching this on my laptop in my bed like last night for the first time. I I did this at any time something happens in a movie theater or, or a TV show that I really like gets me to emote. I just like, come on. I like hit the table or hit my lap or, or whatever. I was freaking out because it's it's some this means something to probably 25 people who happen to have the crossover of being a wrestling fan and a Percy Jackson fan. But I am one of them and it I just thank, you know, the screenwriters for, for putting that nod in, whether or not it was intentional. Well, the number 26 just wandered out of the room because my child is also an Adam Copeland fan and a Percy Jackson fan. And he heard us talking about it. And it's a snow day here because Keon finally got us. And uh, he pops out. I was like, what's going on? Oh, wait, he decides to go back. So that's going to be a conversation, I think. But yes, no, even I picked up on that. And I'm just like, Adam's gonna lose. Um, Liam's gonna lose his mind at this. This is this is perfect. This is perfect. 
I wish I recorded my reaction to it, but fortunately, <laughs> I do have recorded reactions to all of Adam Copeland's analysis on episode five. That's right. We are yes. joined by none other than Edge himself, Aries himself, the TVMA superstar, because he's not the rated R superstar. It's not a theatrical release. It's a TV show, TVMA superstar. See what I did there? We are having Adam Copeland on Riptide Radio right now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Liam Crowley here from comicbook.com with the TVMA superstar, Mr. Adam Copeland. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time. I am ecstatic to talk to you about this show in particular. I told you at the premiere, the two things I want to do at comicbook.com was be the wrestling guy and the Percy Jackson guy. And you are the one through line, <laughs> forbidden door. You're, you're making it all happen, come together. Uh, so thank you so much for taking the time, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to see you again. Yeah, good to see you as well. So I wanted to start by asking, kind of like recycling a question I asked you at the premiere, because obviously with actors, the worst question to ask people is, what attracted you to this project? Everyone just wants to work. But with you, like you were doing a lot of acting in the 2010s when you were away from wrestling, but this is your first project since you returned uh, in 2020. So I assume you're getting auditions and stuff is coming through the mail. But what about Percy Jackson specifically was like, this is the one to get me back into the game? Uh, it, more than anything, it's I'm at a stage in my life, I'm at a stage in my careers, I guess, where it, it's got to be fun or I don't want to do it. Uh, but then it also has to fit into family life and it has to fit into the AEW schedule. So there's a few things that it has to hit. Um, you know, I was just saying before, I, I, you know, I can't go to Istanbul for six months. So I no, I can't. I, I'm not even going to read for that one and, and waste everybody's time. Uh, when I read Percy, when that audition came through, um, because to, to back up, when those books came out, I was on the road all the time. And there are so many things that happened in the, in the pop culture you know, world that, that just I blew by. And that was one of them. Uh, you know, I'd heard of it. You know, you go in the bookstore, you see it. You see it beside, you know, other books and go, okay, well, that's got to be a huge franchise, you know, um, but I didn't fully grasp the size of it, but more than anything, when this audition came in, I found the fun in it. I found the comedic beats in it. I found that I really liked this guy, even though he's, he's not a nice guy, but I knew it would be fun to play. And for me, because of those comedic beats, it wasn't just a one note character. Cause you hear the God of war and you think, okay, well maybe it's just this big dude who screams and yells and that's it. And those elements of Aries have to be in there, but I loved that there were also these other sides, this insecurity, this sarcasm, this, this, you know, the competing with his sister, this, like all of these different layers that go into it. Um, that to me was what, what I found really compelling and, and exciting about it to try and bring to life. Um, so when I, when I got those sides, even my wife said, cause she read with me, she goes, you had a lot of fun with that one. I was like, yeah, I did. I think, I think I know that guy. Um, 
And that doesn't always happen when you get auditions. And I think it just, it speaks to the writing. The writing on this show is just really, really good. Yeah. And it comes across on screen too, with how much fun you were having with this character. Like you talk about yeah. the layered backstory of it all. Like this is a character where he's having a couple conversations. We're not seeing everything he's talking about, but we feel it. We feel that authenticity and that history. Uh, you mentioned the the lack of fami familiarity with what was in the book specifically. Uh, I believe I saw on socials, like your daughters are fans of Percy Jackson, right? Yeah. 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 They, um, they, they love the books. And in watching the show with them up until this point, they loved the show. And for me as a dad, again, at this stage of my life, to see the enjoyment that they're getting from watching this and how into it they're getting without me even appearing, they just like it. And they really relate to the characters. And, and I feel like any good movie show, whether it's the Goonies or you see a little bit of yourself in the characters and that dream of, oh man, I'd like to go through that, that tunnel of love and, and do that. You know, uh, I love anything like that, especially again, at this stage of my life. And when I, you know, do anything at the girls school and, and the kids are running up and saying, oh my God, so Percy did this. I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> That's awesome. And I'm so uh, proud, honestly, to just be a part of it. And when we went to the premiere and the first two episodes played and to see the joy on my girls' faces and to see how into it they were getting and then to see the product and how good it was, I, I just, I, I was so happy and proud to be a part of it. That is so special. I remember- And still am. That, of course, because they haven't even seen you in the show. Yeah, when yeah. that comes, oh boy, that's going to be a hell of a reaction. Uh, I remember when the casting process was going on, Aries was something that wasn't announced until like halfway through production. And I remember I wrote an article like speculating on actors that could play this role. Um, and Becky Reardon, who we have a pretty strong report, reached out to me and she was like, you of all people are going to love who we cast as Aries. And then the news came a couple weeks later. I'm upset at myself for not thinking of you because you returned to WWE with a haircut. And after the fact, I was like, oh, is that related to Aries? So was that the case? Were you going to cut your hair for the show? No, I, I had already done it. Um, and, and actually, so it, it was already cut. And then I remember it was starting to get a little long again. So the day of that I filmed the audition, I just cut my hair myself. I just up the sides and that was it. I was like, eh, supposed to look like a biker. Okay, so I wore one of my like post-apocalyptic edge vests. I threw on an Andre the Giant t-shirt, my head all shaved at the sides, kind of had a bit of a mohawk, and I just went for it. Uh, but it wasn't, you know, the hair was already cut. I just kind of, for that day, I took it a little bit shorter and a little bit crazier looking. Yeah, see, I mean, you talk about bringing edge gear for Aries for the audition. When's the reverse going to happen? When are we going to see Aries gear in an AEW match? <laughs> yeah, who knows maybe in Wembley save it for Wembley that'd be pretty cool I, oh man I will keep my eye out for that uh, let's talk about this episode specifically though we introduced your character you're on the bike obviously then we get to the diner and I was floored by this is a change from the books the fact that you are starting fights on Twitter and in my head canon I'm like he's just typing AEW greater than WWE and everything is going crazy because that's how wrestling fans react uh when, when you're starting fights on Twitter like obviously you're kind of filling in that backstory what are you anticipating that you're just stirring up uh, yeah, I, I truly think a modern day Aries would just get his kicks out of, you know, raising the hackles of as many people with just stupid minutia as possible. 
Um, and, and that's what I, I mean, this, this scene, it wasn't in the books, this scene. So that left a lot open to interpretation and, and to be able to have fun with. And it also really adds some, some backstory to this guy. So I, I was so excited to get into this one. It was actually the first scene that I did. And, um, so I, I remember getting there that day and you're meeting everybody and going, okay, but I got a lot of dialogue here. I got to chug through and, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. And uh, again, that being written in was just another comedic beat that could maybe humanize this guy a little bit, but also make him a little bit endearing. You know, there's something funny about the God of war starting fights on Twitter. It's, it's, it's funny and it's ridiculousness. It absolutely is. You talk about filling in that backstory or just the long monologue you have, the first big chunk of dialogue you have talking to Percy, Annabeth, and Grover. So much of that is like, it should feel like expedition, uh, exposition dump. It should feel like you're just hitting us with a ton of facts, but it all feels lived in. It all feels authentic. Uh, when you're preparing for, for lines like that, how much of that backstory are you kind of filling in to kind of get a sense of how Ares does feel about Athena, Kronos, Zeus, all these characters we haven't seen him interact with, but he's saying that he's had history with? More than anything, I, I pull from when you're portraying the, these emotions, uh, they're real. They've happened to you in life at some point or you've seen it in life. So I look at my, my girls, right? They're seven and 10 and they compete. So I'm like, okay, right. That's what I tap into for how he feels about Athena and why he goes on about the owl being, you know, and, and you can tell he's jealous. The God of war is jealous and, and everyone's been jealous at some point. Or again, I see the competition between my girls and go, oh, right. That's what this is. Cool. I can take some of when they're kvetching to each other. And I'm like, girls, quit it. That's what this is. Um, and, and, that's why I'm, I'm amazed when I see some of the young characters in this show and how they're able to emote and how they're able to, to pull emotion out of you with so little life experience to this stage. And yet they're, they're in there. Like I, some of Walker's scenes, man, like, wow, where are you, where'd you get that from? Cause at this point you're 13. Like, that that's amazing to me and in between takes you're going to school by the way out, out in a portable to do school and then you're coming back like um kind of blows me away but uh, but i uh that's all i try to do when i i think of things like that is pull from real life scenarios or real life experiences and go oh okay so he's just that jealous bully that's not happy with something in his life so he's going to try and make everyone else's life miserable and I mean, you talk about pulling things uh, from like your personal life, but the entire delivery of that monologue, I don't even want to call it a monologue because it's a promo. Like, let's be real. The way that you deliver that entire like, like Aries speech, the energy that gets communicated is how I feel when I see someone get on a microphone inside a squared circle. And so I wanted to ask you, like, you could, there might not be a difference. Is there a difference between an Aries monologue and a pro wrestling promo? Um. I did, there were definitely times where I was pulling from my, my wrestling energy for sure. You know, especially as it get, gets ramped up, you know, and, and, but that's what I try and do within my wrestling promos is make it a story, make it a ride, ramp it up, bring it down. Okay. But uh Oh, he's bubbling again. Those were the things that, that I wanted to 
do within this, you know, for lack of a better term, monologue is, is taken on a bit of a dips, you know, dipsy doodle, as my mom would say. Um, and, uh, and hopefully take the viewer on that too. And then also give Arian Grover something to play off of. He's nervous. He, oh, he thinks he's getting in and he's nervous. Just that push and pull um, is really fun. And, and definitely having to try to be larger than life within wrestling helps when you're playing a God for sure. Yeah. And the biggest thing about a wrestling promo, a monologue, anything in entertainment is you want the audience to feel something. Yeah. And I had Arian on the show last week uh, and I asked him for a little spoiler free tease of what we can expect in episode five. Um, and everyone always talks about your canonical daughter, Dior Goodjohn, which everyone pointed out to me when I shared that clip on social media, your method acting because the gods never meet their kids. Like, <laughs> the yeah, fact that we caught that yeah. on camera, like the claiming on camera, that's how it works in the books too. Um, Dior uh, screams when her speech breaks and walker who plays percy was literally shook he, he tells me that all the time he's like that wasn't acting i was genuinely scared Aryan said he had the same moment with you when you slammed your hands down on the table and he jumped did you feel that authentic fear did you see that your your acting was getting to him on a literal emotional level yes and, and that's what i was going for you know I, I wanted to surprise him i wanted to shock him and i, I the first take shocked everyone because food jumped and glasses fell. And, um, but I wanted to get that reaction. And uh, it got to the point where Jet, our director, she goes, okay, you got to scare him on this one. I was like, right, okay. So uh, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a blast. And um, it, it really was. It was just that that scene was so much fun because it's such a, that character is written to steal scenes. I don't know how else to put it. And I knew that gift was being put in my lap. So if I don't, then it's purely on me. Uh, and we are not going to see the last of you in this episode. Obviously, we've seen it in the trailer footage. You're going to have a big duel with Percy uh, at a later point during the season. But I want to ask you kind of a bigger picture question. Anyone who plays a god in this series, they're in it for the long haul, I would have to assume. Because even though you know your screen time is limited in the books um, and the sequel series, Ares is a character that pops up again and again. We even get the Roman version of him, Mars, in the Heroes of Olympus sequel series. So are you, as an actor, when you signed on to this project, are you prepared for this to potentially be the next 10 years of your life? I, I mean, I assumed, uh, and you know what happens when you assume, but with this franchise, with Rick being so heavily involved, I, I, I thought the fan base would be all in on this one, you know, because he's, because he's so involved and because... It's his vision being now brought to the screen. Uh, so I, I knew there was a good chance that this would be a success. And, um, and like I said, back to the diner scene, that wasn't in the books. So I know there's, there's ability if your character connects or your character hits that who, who knows what they could write in to add more layers or to, to fill out a story. Um, either way, I'm going to be there if they want me. <laughs> well, that's, that's what we all want to hear because i i fully anticipate this thing getting a season two a season three and there's so much source material adam uh we'll have to have you back on when the uh fight goes down in a couple of weeks uh but for now thank you so much for your time thank you appreciate it well, thank you so much, Mr. Adam Copeland. And a nice little nugget for all you Riptide Radio fans, all you comicbook.com fans, Adam will be joining us again for the season finale. So stick around for that. We are going to break down shot by shot the fight with Percy Jackson. You all know it's coming. You've seen it in the trailer. Oh my Adam God. will be back. 
for the season finale. But before we get to the season finale, Nicole, we are going to the Lotus Casino. Are, are you a, are yes, you a casino are. enjoyer? Are you a gambler at all? Do you play the slot machines? I'm not a huge gambler, but I do love the casinos in Vegas. I think they're so cool. And I'm pretty good at the slot machines. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm down for this. I'm down for this. I'm not a casino guy, but I am an arcade guy, which is basically the same thing. And same that thing. ball drop game where you like you press the button and the ball bounces around and it, it could land in a three-point value or a jackpot mm -hmm. value. Oh my god, the amount of golden drachmas I've wasted at, on that machine. <laughs> it's it's bad. I, I could probably pay off my student loans right now. Pay off my new Rome mm. university loans right now. That's right. That's a bunch of references for all you. I have read the books. It's been some time. I have read the books though. Uh, Nicole, thank you so much uh, for chatting with me for, on Riptide Radio. Uh, where can the people find you? Well, they can find me on Twitter or whatever's passing for Twitter these days at Life and Polaroid. Everywhere else, I am the Nicole Drum. And if you're following along on anything I write for comicbook.com, not Percy Jackson oriented, but I did just run an interview I did with the VFX supervisor for Barbie talking about how they did the Mattel headquarters, which was really, really, really fascinating. Some of the things they did to make that place both comical and also a corporate prison, which I thought was really cool. We are getting close to award season and like, I feel we like are. something like that could find its way into a category. Uh, for me, I am on all socials at Liam T. Crowley, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, most active on Instagram. And if you want to see interview clips, clips from this show, Riptide Radio, uh, they're always going to be on my Instagram, uh, always on my Twitter, always on my TikTok, and also on comic book socials at comic book on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Also at comic book nation over on Twitter. Make sure you guys like, comment, and subscribe. We shattered our viewership record last week uh, in our previous viewership record took seven days to hit and we beat that in 24 hours with last week's episode and I feel yeah. like I feel like this episode has the potential to set a new record uh, and we are going to keep bringing on big guests as long as the numbers are there so please 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 like comment subscribe all that good stuff and we will see you next week as we venture to the Lotus Casino <laughs>